Brother David, my dear brethren and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ and young people, before we come to the second advent of Nehemiah, we must consider firstly one of the most important moments in his previous career. An important moment when he joined together with Ezra, his great friend, his elder statesman, and when they brought the whole ecclesia together around a study class in Jerusalem. We take up our story from Nehemiah chapter 8, where we left it yesterday, to see the effect of the word of truth when it is properly loved, when it is properly handled, when it is properly understood amongst the people. And this was the moment that was to lay the great foundation for a moment, a time of joy when Nehemiah was to finally return from a period of absence away in a far country. And so in Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 8, as Ezra gathered the people together, there was Nehemiah beside him, they set up a study class for the ecclesia. And on this occasion, they read in the book of the law of God distinctly, they gave the sense, and they caused them to understand the meaning. Three most important principles, if we are going to read and appreciate and understand God's holy word. This word of pure language. We read that they had to, they took the book of the law and read distinctly. The word means to scatter, it means to break up into pieces, it means to, to allow it to be disseminated, like the sower of the seed as he goes down the field, he places his hand into the pure corn of his bag and there he scatters it before him. So they caused the word to sink into the soil of their minds in such a way that it might germinate. For they desired the word of God to reproduce itself in new life. It is necessary, therefore, if we would be proper leaders of the ecclesia, proper leaders in our own home with our family, proper leaders in our group of associates, whatever the circumstance Yahweh provides for us, it is right and needful that we disseminate the word in a proper fashion as a sower is response, uh, sees the need for his responsibility to place that seed in a proper position. So they read distinctly so that the words of Yahweh were opened up. Not only that, but we read that they gave the sense. The Hebrew word there means to put weight to it. They emphasised the important principles. They gave value and utility to the word by stressing certain principles. So that by this emphasis, they caused them to understand the reading. Rotherham has it, and giving the sense caused them to understand the, read, the, the, the reading. Thus it gave them a mental taste and perception of the glory of this word. That's what it means when it says that they understood the reading. They were instructed in the law, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2. And this went on all the morning. This dissemination of the word, this excitement of the, of the word, as the picture of glory was painted to them, drawn out of the law of Yahweh. And it's very important, brethren and sisters, that we get that excitement of the word. There's so many pieces of literature in this world that can excite the senses. Perhaps more so in mine than your country. 
But the word of God is something that has a value to it and when we get a love for it and an excitement about it, then it will draw us always onwards. And a taste for spiritual things must be engendered in us as a personal commitment as well as those about us. A taste for, pers- uh, for spiritual things is most important. Now, the effect of the reading of the word from Nehemiah and Ezra was such that the people, and verse 9 at the end, the people wept when they heard the words of the law. That's the sort of effect. Have you ever had that effect, brethren and sisters, as you read the word of truth? That you feel the tremendous emotion of it? It may be because of your own personal circumstances. Maybe because of something swirling around you. Maybe because of the sadness of the circumstance of these days. But here were people who wept when they heard the word of the Lord, of, of the law. That's the powerful effect that this thing has, this principle has. But it was not to be a day of weeping, it was to be a moment of rejoicing. The weeping was to be put aside now. And Nehemiah, verse 9, which was the governor, and Ezra, the priest, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people, said unto the people, This day, this day, this new day, this first day, as you have it in verse 2 of the seventh month, this first day of the civil year, is holy unto Yahweh your God. Mourn not, nor weep. It was a day of joy. It was a day of wonder. They were to be opened out. And the best way we can show our rejoicing to God is to help those that we can help. Matthew 25 comes to mind again. Inasmuch as you've done it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you've done it to me. And in the words of the prophet Isaiah, in chapter 58, verse 13, If you turn your foot away from the Sabbath from doing thy pleasure in my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of Yahweh honourable, and shall honour him not doing thine own work, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words, then he says, then thou shalt delight thyself in Yahweh. The word there in Isaiah 58 verse 14, the word delight means to be soft and pliable. Thou shalt be pliable in the, thou shalt be soft and pliable in the things of God because you are are applying divine instruction and you're bending yourself to his will. You're not stubborn anymore. And that brings joy. That brings the sort of joy that you have it in verse 10 of Nehemiah 8. When he said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. Spread your bounty and your benefits to all those about you. Enjoy the fraternal association with one another. Oh, that's a wonderful experience, brethren and sisters. We have a taste of it, don't we, in fellowship weeks and Bible schools and things of that nature and ecclesial fraternals and family gatherings together as we join and and enjoy our common understanding with each other. For this day is separate, it's holy unto our Lord, neither be ye sorry, for the joy of Yahweh is your strength. The word strength means your fortified tower. It means your place of safety. Where's our place of safety? Not in this world. It's in the joy of Yahweh. A place of safety from the problems of this world. That's where our problems are solved. Whatever they may be. 
<coughs> the problems of life can be solved or they can be forgotten with a quiet contemplation of the scriptures. As our Lord Jesus Christ said on another occasion, as is recorded in Luke chapter, they're not our Lord said, our Lord involved himself in, in Luke chapter 24 and verse uh, uh, 32. Luke 24 verse 32. The men on the way to Emmaus, <coughs> they needed a place of safety because their hearts had been shattered that weekend. Shattered because of the circumstances of the crucifixion. They couldn't understand what was happening. And he was one who had walked beside them now, another teacher. They didn't know who he was, but he had expressed to them the reasons why Jesus Christ of Nazareth was the Messiah. He was the law and the prophets as he opened them out to them. And their sorrow turned to joy. See in verse 32, they said one to another, <coughs> Did not our heart burn within us? Burn within us. The, the impact of that emotion had an expression. They felt it while he talked to us, by the way, and while he read distinctly the scriptures, opened them out, scattered the seed into their hearts and minds. As he elaborated the scriptures, wouldn't it have been wonderful to have been with those men? To hear the Lord Jesus Christ expound the word. He was the word. To hear him expound it, that'd be better than city walls. Who needs city walls, brethren and sisters, when that's the principle of truth? Who needs statement of faith when that's the appreciation that we have of the word? When our continual delight is in the things of the truth, we don't need statements of faith anymore under those circumstances because our heart burns as we come to the word and we allow it to, in, to involve us. Unfortunately, that's not always the experience of life. That's why statements of faith are still necessary until he come. In verse 12 of Nehemiah chapter 8, then, the joy that they experienced was not because of the returning of the captivity, not because they had been released from Babylon, not because they had now come back and were inheriting their portion in Yahweh's holy land. It was because of their understanding of the word. Their joy of Yahweh was their, their strength. And the greatest blessing of life is in an understanding of the word. All the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send their portions and to make great mirth, great gladness, great rejoicing as the word means. Not because they were saved from captivity. Not because we've been baptised necessarily. Not because they've built the wall. Not because they've achieved peace. It was because they had understood the words which were declared unto them. That's the power of happiness. If we would be truly happy, it would be, if we would be truly joyful, it doesn't depend upon the circumstances of life that swirl around us. Happiness is from within, brethren and sisters. It's not developed from without. Happiness is generated from our heart and our mind as we immerse ourselves in the word of truth. That's the source of true happiness. That's the greatest blessing of life. And the psalmist knew that. David realised that in the, as all the difficult things of his life came upon him after 
in the latter years of his life, when he felt the trauma and the difficulties of family disruption, when he experienced those, those uh, uh, tribulations of life over which he had no control. He says in Psalm 147, the spirit of David says in verse 1, Praise ye Yahweh, for it is good to sing praises unto our God. It is pleasant, and praise is comely. In verse 12, Praise Yahweh, O Jerusalem, praise thy God, O Zion, for he hath strengthened the bars of thy gates. He hath blessed thy children within thee. And in verse 19, He hath showed his word unto Jacob, his statutes and his judgments unto Israel. A wonderful privilege. He's not dealt so with any other nation. The people outside that are rushing into this place today don't appreciate the happiness, the true happiness and contentment that we share together around this book. They reject that book. They ignore its principles and they think to themselves that their happiness is in the pursuit of natural things. Brethren and sisters, we're going to see the reason, or the results rather, of happiness now as we turn over the pages of, these, of this record of Nehemiah. For twelve years he had been at Jerusalem. For twelve years he had laboured with his people. He had, in chapter 3, built the walls of Jerusalem with them. In chapter 6, he had revitalised the nation as he injected them with his, uh, with his enthusiasm. In chapter 8, he had brought Ezra to read the word to them. In chapter 9, he had educated the people in spiritual matters. In chapter 10, he had involved them in the covenant with his God. In chapter 12, he and Ezra, those two great leaders, those pioneers of the truth, one younger, one older, had led the whole nation in a march of dedication around the walls in a symbol of protection to all the people. As, as we have the opportunity, the privilege of having two great men who might protect us from the evil environment and uh, doctrinal apostasy that can attack us. And now in chapter 11, <coughs> in chapter 11 and verses 1 and 2, he organises a new census of the people that had brought a willing offering to assist the truth. And the rulers of the people dwelt at Jerusalem. The rest of the people also cast lots to bring one of ten to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city, and nine parts to dwell in other cities. And the people blessed all the men that willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. There was yet another problem to be solved. With the temple completed now, the house of prayer, with the walls and the defence of that city erected and uh, protecting the people, with the people stabilised on a covenant and an agreement with their God through baptism, now a further problem was faced. The problem of population was tackled. Jerusalem had suffered because of the meagre population previously there. There were a lot of people dwelling in the cities round about the, about the, the centre of Jerusalem. And in a surge of enthusiasm for reform, the people agree to correct this in verse 1. So, 
There are one of ten in all the nation, in all the population about, who agree to come and support the truth in Jerusalem. A tithe of the nation is presented to God in Jerusalem. What would this mean personally to those one-tenth of the nation who said, we see the need of Jerusalem, we see the problems of the lack of population, we are going to respond to that appeal. Uprooting their home. Leaving their beautiful property in the country. Missing their friends and their neighbours. Coming to a centre of problems and difficulties and trials. A heavy sacrifice of material matters. Involving themselves perhaps in uncongenial work and conditions as labourers and artificers in the capital. That's what it means, brethren and sisters. It means a, certain, a matter of sacrifice for the truth. It means of seeing the, where the value of the truth is required and the need to sacrifice ourselves, our possessions, our desires, our ambitions, therefore. The Apostle Paul, in the second of Corinthians, <coughs> chapter 12 and verse, and verse 10 says, Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. And that's the point. For Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He recognised that the need of the truth was preeminent in all that he did. But they, the people in Jerusalem not only sacrificed their their convenience and their places and their prosperity and their material advantages, not only because of the love of the truth, but they saw a need and extended themselves to fill it. They gave themselves without stint in assisting the depleted cause of the ecclesia at Jerusalem. Now notice <coughs> in this chapter four areas of, a, of uh, Nehemiah's concern. There were four areas of concern. There was the temple and the wall and the education and the increase of the people. First of all, he saw a need to strengthen the temple, the worship of Yahweh. And this must come first in our considerations. Must come first in our desires to provide that which is important in the things of the truth. The temple is the central thing of our worship. That speaks of true worship. And he, says Jesus in John 4, verse 24, he that uh, comes to me, must, he that would worship God, must worship him in spirit and in truth. Two principles there. In spirit is emotion, and truth is, is word. We've got to have both heart and mind together and we've got to worship him completely. It's like Ecclesiastes chapter 12 says that we must be a whole man. So there must be a fervour about the truth as he sees the need to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city, in verse 1 of chapter 11. There must be a fervour about it. We must, we must uh, breathe 
the spirit of our beliefs. That must be our first love, as we learn in Revelation chapter 2. But then there was a need to strengthen the walls. The walls are the provision of a sound defence. The walls are that which protects us, protects us from attack. It speaks about the sound doctrine that we need as well as true worship. True worship first, then sound doctrine, brethren and sisters. The early ecclesia allowed that to crumble, remember? Allowed the true, pure doctrine to crumble and a man of sin emerged. And soon the walls were broken down and the apostasy flooded in and in the early years of the early centuries of, the, of history, after the common era, in the common era, the apostasy was able to penetrate the ecclesial walls. And the sad state of religion as you have it today was, was developed. That's the, that's the value that we have as, of a statement of faith that we must respect, that we must honour. The Apostle Paul has some matters in this regard when he wrote to young Timothy in chapter 4 and verse 16 of his first epistle. He said, Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine, continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Notice, remember now, observe now, rather, the two processes that Paul is educating young Timothy in. He says, take heed to yourself first and then others. Save yourself first and others if you can who hear thee. We can't save others first without saving ourselves. The Lord Jesus Christ gave us an example. He came saving himself and through that salvation he embraces our salvation as well. And it can never be the other way round. Otherwise we are twofold more the child of hell who, proselyting for Jesus Christ, we find ourselves in destruction. So we need a statement of faith, a sound wall of defence, and we need to maintain that. Then comes the third part, to educate the principles of the truth as we dwell at Jerusalem. Education, there was a need to read the word. So the walls went up, or the temple went up first of all under Ezra. The walls went up first under Nehemiah. Then there was an education as Nehemiah and Ezra read the word to them. They became stimulated in the message. This is the third step to a successful life. They were uh, stimulated by the message. They were enthralled by the words of the Lord, by the prophecies comforted by the Psalms, as it were, encouraged by the epistles, that's our privilege. As we experience the seed sown upon our hearts and minds, that speaks of a sound understanding. So whereas Ezra provided, first of all, true worship, then Nehemiah came with the war and and, uh, provided for sound doctrine, now they combine together. As they gather the ecclesia together, that day, and provided sound understanding, worship, doctrine, understanding, and that's provided in our times by our study classes and by the deep, thoughtful, personal meditation of the word. I delight to read thy words, says the psalmist in Psalm 119. It is my, it is my meditation all the day, all the day. He's thinking about the word, says the psalmist the great king. 
And the fourth point of, of faithful service to our God is providing for an increase. And we have that in chapter 11 here. Jerusalem had suffered by a lack. The people saw a need and they acted to provide that. They urged others inside Jerusalem. They urged them to come within the walls of the city. It was an effective gospel proclamation activity. They spoke the word to others. Come inside the city. You have, we have a need of you inside this city. And that brings about a population increase, whether it is from our own family, from our workmates, or from the work of the ecclesia in distribution and proclamation work. It brings the hope to others. It may cause us difficulty, brethren and sisters. It may cause us sacrifice of time. It may cause us to change our uh, arrangements to provide support for such work and labour, either by ourselves, with others, or with our ecclesia. Paul says, in the first of Corinthians chapter 1 verse 23, But we preach Christ crucified. It wasn't only that he was preaching the principles of the atonement, he says that in his preaching there was an example of Jesus Christ crucified. He was sacrificing himself in the principle of preaching, going out of his way to speak to other people. We preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called by both Jews and Greeks Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So we have to, as we're told in Romans 12 verse 1, present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto our God, which is our service of reason. Not our reasonable service, our service of logic. It's proper that that should be so. Well, Nehemiah's work now is nearly at his completion as far as the first advent is concerned. He had established a grand work of restoration, a grand work of salvation. He had corrected apostasy in Israel. He had presided and, uh, provided a means of protection against the evil that was so easily besetting them in the Samaritans around about. And he had brought the people into a covenant relationship with God, thus securing their atonement in a national sense. And it is significant, therefore, in chapter 12 and verse 47, that this statement concludes his mission. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the portions of the singers and the porters every day his portion and they sanctified holy things unto the Levites and the Levites sanctified them unto the children of Aaron. Good leadership. Harmonious ecclesial cooperation. Thoughtful sacrificing for the truth. People responding to the appeal of the ecclesia. They are providing a tithe to the house of their God. They gave portions, you notice, of the singers and the porters. Every day his portion. One body, many parts. They gave of their portions that together they might be not only interdependent on each other, 
but all dependent on the house of God. If you start the priesthood, everyone suffers. The Apostle Paul in the second of Corinthians chapter nine verse six says For this I say, he that soweth sparingly shall reap sparingly, and he that soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Star the priests, everyone starves. Star the truth, everyone starves, brethren and sisters. Don't support the work of the ecclesia and the house of God will crumble. That's the point here. That's why Zerubbabel and Nehemiah saw the very great value of every man sending his portion, putting his hand to the plough, supporting the work of the truth. (coughs) And, and And in their love for the truth at Jerusalem, their need for each other, it brought them together in one body. Yeah, many members, but one body. Says the Lord Jesus, says the Apostle Paul. So, under those circumstances, having provided a basis of one body, of one many members, and the basis of an ecclesial association, Nehemiah left them. He had performed the work, typically, of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 47, you have the memorial meeting in Jerusalem. Many Years later, 500 years later, when the Lord Jesus got his 12 disciples together and again, he said, he broke the bread and he said, this is my body as he apportioned out to each of them a certain responsibility. And this is my blood, he said, as he apportioned out to them a certain responsibility. They, he gave portions unto the singers and to the porters, every man his portion, and they returned it unto the children of Aaron. So he left the city. Our Lord left the city, having laid the basis of pure and true worship, and having shown the principles of ecclesial love and cooperation. And the people he loved, and the city he loved, he left for a period. He had to go back to the court of Persia. He had to report on his activities to the great king himself, the great king who had allowed him to come, the great king who had given him authority to come to work in Jerusalem for this period. And like the nobleman of Luke chapter 19, he went into a far country and while he was absent, brethren and sisters, what happened? From verse 47 of Nehemiah 12 to verse 1 and Nehemiah 13, you have a period of time believed to be about four years while Nehemiah was absent. And while he was absent, what happened? A man of sin reared his head. Second of Thessalonians chapter 2 was fulfilled. A man of sin appeared. The apostasy reared his head. Nehemiah wasn't there anymore. And then always in the absence of good sound leadership and the honour of the word, the apostasy will inevitably rear its head. That the mind of the flesh comes again. The serpent power entwines itself and the voice of compromise is sounded. Who was it? The high priest himself allowed it. Elisha. 
the high priest was unable to uphold the principles of truth and the, and the uh, uh, foundation of righteousness. And as you see, as we go forward a little moment into chapter 13 and at verse 24, as you see, he allowed the marriage laws to be relaxed. He diminished the importance of tithes and first fruits, which had effectively reduced the influence of the priests and the Levites accomplishing their proper work. <coughs> Study classes were neglected. The worship of the worship of God in spirit and in truth became unimportant. It was a social club that Eliashib desired. And as you, we read that chapter, we learned of priests who were forced to work in the fields to sustain themselves because people were not cooperating and supporting the work of the truth. That's what happened when Nehemiah was away. And the storehouses were now empty. And Eliashib saw that if the storehouses were now empty, he would put them to good use. So he built little dwelling places in there. He made them into homes. The storehouses which should have been God's uh, bounty, which should have received God's bounty, God's store, God's blessing, now being empty because the work of the truth was being relaxed and neglected, he now converts into dwellings and he invites Tobiah. Tobiah the Ammonite he allows Tobiah the Ammonite to come in and dwell in Jerusalem. Tobiah was the Israel's deadly enemy, the Ammonite, the friend of Sambalat, the Horonite. He was brought into the presence of the Ecclesia. And at the same time, brethren and sisters, the Sabbath was being desecrated by the hordes of traders who were jostling with each other to, to produce uh, trade and commerce in their incessant desire to gain wealth. There was the, the uh, money changers and the tables of the dove sellers sitting there as they were later and Eliashib had allowed it. Why was that? Eliashib had allowed that sad story that we have there in, in this particular chapter in verse 7 I came to Jerusalem and understood of the evil that Eliashib did for Tobiah in preparing him a chamber in the courts of the house of God you see brethren and sisters beforehand when Nehemiah was labouring at his first advent the enemy were outside and it says of them that they were grieved because of the work of Nehemiah what he was doing inside but now Nehemiah was outside and Tobiah the enemy was inside and he was now grieved. For he was outside and the man of sin was inside the holy place. And when he came back, like the Lord Jesus Christ came back, it said, it grieved me sore in verse 8, therefore I cast forth all the household stuff of Tobiah out of his chamber. A prefiguring of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ which he himself did as an antitypical fulfilment of Nehemiah's work. Why did Nehemiah, uh, Elisha permit all this? He who had the care of the ecclesia, he who knew the oracles of the, of the living God, he who had holiness to Yahweh across his forehead. 
He was a worker in the truth. You remember in chapter 3 verse 1, the first name mentioned of those workers who were building with bricks and mortar the walls of Jerusalem was Eliashib. He was foremost in that labour. What happened? Driven away perhaps by spurious liberality? Viewed with a distaste and aversion the exclusiveness and the narrowness of Nehemiah? Said we ought to be friends with everyone, we ought to have a lovely society, association. We ought to be tolerant and liberal, he said. A doctrine which many times nearly brought Israel to ruin. A doctrine that Balaam understood. A doctrine that Jezebel understood. A doctrine that the Nicolaitans understood. But God's never been without a witness, even under those circumstances when apostasy has been flourishing through the earth. God has never been without a witness in the earth, brethren and sisters, and in times of crisis he raises up men and women of faith. Oh, they may not be able to convert large numbers, but their message is one of witness to those who are prepared to hear like the Apostle Paul says in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 7 about Noah, to those who are prepared to hear or against those as a witness who refuse. And whilst Nehemiah was away, there was a liarship developing an apostasy and God raised up a man. Malachi's voice sounds between the end of chapter 12 and chapter 13 of Nehemiah. You've got to put Malachi's prophecy there. Malachi was raised up at that moment during the four years of absence Malachi's voice was heard like the Apostle Paul he was speaking forth the same prophecy of Malachi to the, to the brethren and sisters of Ephesus remember for three days nearly the same period three years not three days nearly the same period of time as Nehemiah's absence remember for three years I warned you night and day with tears and Malachi is doing the same thing now. As you look at the prophecy of Malachi, and we haven't unfortunately time to do that this, today. You look at the prophecy of Malachi, he's talking about the general state of irreligion and laxity. Chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 of Malachi. He talks about the priests which despise and profane God's name. He talks about the decrepit sacrifices that they were bringing, the lame and the blind. Offer them, he says to your governor. See what he thinks of that. See what the world thinks of the sort of service you're giving to your God. And that was a terrible indictment against them. And he says that you've departed out of your way, out of his way. You've corrupted the covenant of Levi, he says. He called them <coughs> in chapter 3 of Malachi he called them thieves and robbers this was Eliashib this was the people of Nehemiah's ecclesia adulterers he says in verse 5 of chapter 3 treacherous dealers he, he uses those terms and committers of abomination they were the description of Malachi to Nehemiah's ecclesia as he spoke to them and then he says you are cursed with a curse. Malachi 3 verse 9. And he urges repentance in view of the coming of the messenger, of the messenger of the covenant. It seems to me, brethren and sisters, that Malachi's message is thus appropriate for our times. 
He was delivered between the first advent and the second advent of Nehemiah. He describes a brotherhood which was a feat. A brotherhood which had neglected its sound foundations that had been established by their great leader Nehemiah. And he says that the messenger of the covenant is about to come forth and when he comes forth, he will come forth with fire and fury and shall destroy and burn as a stubble those evil things. We stand in those days. We stand in that portion of four years between the advent of Nehemiah. Days just preceding the coming of the Lord of glory. The message is one for an ecclesia of a Laodicean attitude. That's what you have between Nehemiah chapter 12 and chapter 13. Laodicean, materialism, laxity. When the Lord comes, will he find faith on the earth? Luke chapter 19, 18 rather. When he comes, shall he find faith on the earth? The word warns us, prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. The exhortation of the Apostle Paul to in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, I believe that after my departing, uh, uh, grievous wolves will enter in amongst you, not sparing the flock. So, pasture your sheep, protect your flock, he says. Pasture the sheep of God, which he has purchased with his, the, his own blood, the blood of his own. <coughs> For three years, this situation pertained in the days of Malachi, in the days of Nehemiah. And then, and then the words of Malachi sounded forth in chapter, <coughs> in chapter 3 and verse 1. As that third year rolled away, brethren and sisters, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And Yahweh, whom thou, whom ye seek, <laughs> you see, what he's saying is in verse the previous verse, verse seventeen. Where is the God of judgment? Scorners. Everything continues like it was since the fathers fell asleep. Where's the promise of his coming? Where's the God of judgment? Where's the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? And we go our pleasant, merry way through life. Oh, the one that you seek, the one that you seek, where is the God of judgment? He's coming. He's coming. He shall suddenly come to his temple like a thief. Behold, I come quickly. I come suddenly. He shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom you delight in. It's a voice of irony. Behold, he shall come, saith Yahweh of hosts. Yahweh Zavayat, the militant title of deity. Malachi's prophecy forecast, foretold of the coming of the messenger. Ultimately, of course, that referred to John the Baptist in the first advent of the Lord and the Elijah at his second advent, of whom he speaks in the end of chapter three, uh, end of chapter four of Malachi. But in a type it also alluded to, ne uh, to Nehemiah's return for he was the messenger of the covenant and he was about to return from Persia, Persia and that was what Malachi was primarily talking about. He'd been in Persia reporting the activities that he had done to the king. I have built the walls, laid the foundation, provided a, an ecclesia, 
That's what I've done, O king, O father. As he reported to his superior on his work on earth. And the condemnatory message of the forthright Malachi had been sounded forth. And like the words of the Lord to the Ecclesias in Asia, perhaps this caused Malachi and Nehemiah to return as he had heard the sounds. He had heard the sounds of Laodicean pleasure. What's these words I hear, Joshua? Oh, they are the words of, of uh, uh, people preparing for war, Moses. Oh, no, they're not, Joshua. They are, the prepa- they are the sounds of people singing and dancing, I hear. As that man who knew his people came down from the mountain to face apostasy on the fields below him. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud and all that do wickedly shall be as stubble. He's talking to an ecclesia. He's not talking to the world, not talking to those outside. And that day that cometh shall burn them up, saith Yahweh of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. No basis in Jerusalem, nor hope of any future. No root nor branch. No present, no future. And on his return he noted the spiritual deterioration of the people. It's with sadness that we come to Nehemiah chapter 13. Very great sadness that it comes. We read that uh, in verse 6 that while he was away, he was not at Jerusalem, he was with Artaxerxes the king of Babylon and he came to the king and after certain days the king told him he might return. At the set time he might return and he came to Jerusalem and understood the evil. It seems that he called them together for the purpose of reading the law. You have that in verse 1 which is actually after his return that he mentions in verse 7. Verse 1 is after that period. Verse 7 is a way, by way of explanation. So in verse 1, on that day they read in the book of the law of Moses in the audience of the people and it was found therein written that the Ammonite and the Moabite should not come into the congregation of Yahweh forever. Here's the judgment seat. And the principles of the truth said that no Ammonite nor nor Moabite should be in the congregation of Yahweh. There were goats there, brethren and sisters, beside the sheep. And now the book of the law is open and read. The book of life is open. And names are recorded. And here is an Ammonite and a Moabite. This, says Nehemiah, was the best way of of moving the people, seeing that the high priest himself was affected, to reveal to them the principles of the law, the word of truth. The word's the only thing that can change us. Romans 1.16, it's a dynamo, we mentioned before. A dynamo, the the gospel, is the dynamo of God to them that believe. Fortunately here, now the people again respond. They cleanse themselves of that evil environment. But this time, (coughs) unlike previously, a stronger attitude is made evident because of what had happened. In verse 4, And before this, Elisha the priest, having the oversight of the chamber of the house of our God, was allied unto Tobiah. Allied, the word means a kinsfolk. Not merely a companion, a kinsfolk. 
through marriage ties. Eliashib had allowed his son to marry the daughter of Sambalat, as you have it in verse 28. And that was in direct contrast to the agreement to marry only in the law that they had entered into, chapter 10, verse 30. And Nehemiah's second approach, second advent, brought an immediate judgment upon the household of faith. He returned, as we said in verse 6, at the set time to favour Zion. He came with full authority of the king. He had been given instruction by the king to lay hold of people in judgment. And for the second time, Nehemiah inspected the city. He didn't see ruins of walls and black bricks and broken down pillars and, and rotting gates. He saw the same condition in people. This time he didn't look for desolate ruins, brethren and sisters, for broken down gates and fallen masonry, but what he did see was a house in ruin. It was the house of God in verse 7. The court chamber in the courts of the house of God and that's really more than bricks and mortar. Eliashib had the oversight of the house, verse 4. He had the responsibility of the house. He represented the family of God. It should have been a haven for truth. He should have seen that it was a haven for truth in which all the faithful can shelter and be protected. But who was inside the house of God? Tobiah, Israel's deadly enemy. He was not only in there, he was dwelling in there. Can you imagine that? The doors of the ecclesial fellowship had been swung wide open. Come in, Tobiah. You can dwell there. You can have your house there. And he allowed the enemies of the truth to meet in the very presence of the distinctive, separate, holy God of Israel. What do we do with our home, brethren and sisters? Our home must be a haven for our family from the influences of the world. Our home must be a place of love. Our home must be a place of help and instruction and care and warmth. We have in our home our family in an intimate relationship. We love to have our family, our children, our kiddies around. We must believe that that home shelters them from evil. We've got to see that we protect it, that we make that home a place where they know that they can obtain (coughs) protection and help. And we would take exception to anyone that will come and upset the equilibrium of our home. Or who take food from our cupboards and allow our children to starve. We should never stand by and let our homes be destroyed and neither will God. Elisha had a key to the cupboard. Elisha had a key to the cupboard for the spiritual food for God's children and he gave that key into the hands of a man who was dedicated to the the destruction of the children of God, an Ammonite. But what was Nehemiah going to do? He did exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ later did. With his characteristic zeal, with his his determination, he physically got hold of Tobiah's furniture, he got open the window and he tossed the furniture out into the window. He did what the Lord Jesus Christ did when he came in and got a scourge of whips and slashed the cross. 
the, the tables of the money changers and the seat of those that sold doves. He physically revealed what, he's, what he emotionally felt. He had, they had made his father's house a den of thieves. They had defiled the holy place. So Nehemiah got all their furniture and he tossed it out of the window into the street below. He cleansed the chambers and he brought back the holy vessels into that holy place. In verse 10 and 11 he says, I perceived that the portions of the Levites have not been given them. For the Levites and the singers that did the work were fled everyone to his field. They had to find their own sustenance. No one cared about the, the workers for the truth. And because the house of God had been forsaken, spiritual progress was impeded. And Nehemiah now sets about restoring good leadership. Here's the recipe for success for your ecclesia, wherever it is in South Africa. Here's the recipe for success. Establish good leadership, brethren and sisters, which holds the purity of the truth in its first place. Then let brethren and sisters select those who are upright in the things of God who know the word of God and who are prepared to handle the word of God properly and then you'll have prosperity in your meeting. So he places in verse 13 a number of treasurers. They are appointed. <coughs> Malachi in his prophecy spoke of those who feared Yahweh and thought often of his name. He said the book of, <coughs> book of remembrance shall be uh, drawn up for those and they shall be my jewels. They shall be my jewels. You find jewels in the treasury. I made treasurers over the treasuries. And he names them. Here were some who had remained faithful to Nehemiah. Who had spoken often of Yahweh's name in, in whatever circumstances they could. They, during the dark night of apostasy, brethren and sisters, here they were, these, these faithful treasurers, preserving the beauty and the treasure and the gems of God. They themselves were now going to be made a gem. They were going to be made a bright signet in his ring. They typify us. There's our names there in verse 13. Yours and mine, brethren and sisters. Our names as we in this latter day apostasy endeavour to maintain the purity of the word and speak often one of another of Yahweh's name and what it means. And then you have in verse 14 one of those staccato prayers. We're marking them as we come to them and we read them. Remember me, O my God, concerning this and wipe not out my good deeds that I have, that I have done for the house of my God and for the offices thereof. He seeks the divine blessing upon his activity for the house of his God, how he had laboured effectively under difficulty. Unless Yahweh build the house, we learn in Psalm 127, unless Yahweh build the house, we labour in vain that build it. Our labours and our rewards are directly related to our attitude to the house. Directly related to our attitude to the principles of the ecclesia. And for that reason he took action against those who were desecrating the Sabbath. Verses 15 onwards. In those days I saw in Judah some treading wine presses on the Sabbath. They ought to have been at the memorial meeting. And here they were, they were working their wine presses. They should have been at the study class. 
They were bringing in sheaves and lading asses and wine and grapes and figs and all manner of burdens. And when they brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, when there was a special meeting that the ecclesia had arranged for the purpose of memorial or study or Sunday school or proclamation. And I testified against them in that day when they sold victuals. He would tolerate none of that, brethren and sisters. There dwelt men of Tyre also therein, which brought in fish and wares and on the Sabbath day and sold it to the children of Judah. As people were going into the meeting place, they were thinking about purchasing possessions, doing trade. In verse 17, Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said unto them, What evil thing is this that you do, that you're profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers thus, and did not our God bring upon all this evil upon us? Verse 19, And it came to pass when the gates of Jerusalem began to be dark before the Sabbath, I commanded that the gates should be shut. We're going to shut our gates. We're going to say to our brethren and sisters, we have a meeting plan, we shall be there. Because we see the value of that. Nehemiah is showing us that. He says the Sabbath is not to be an in, it's not to be an inconvenience. Oh, I, you know, it's a brother, it's a bother. I've got to go to the meeting tonight. I really was going to uh, um, do a deal, uh, do some transaction, and go out to a party, attend the pictures. I was going to do this or that or the other. It's the Sabbath was an inconvenience. God says in Isaiah, the Sabbath should be a pleasure. We should, we should say. I wish that we could go and we can meet with our brethren and sisters again. I, I hope this day of labour goes quickly because I can be at a study class. I can see the brethren and sisters. I can read the word. Time off to serve the truth must not be done grudgingly. And they were here, they were reluctant to sacrifice by attending study classes and other ways of serving the house of God. And so he removed them. Remove the heretics, verse 16. Reprove the leaders for neglect, verse 17. Warn that their action against the truth was to be rejected and ridiculed, verse 18. Close the gates against wickedness and sin, verse 19. Cleanse the Levites for additional duty, verse 22. Commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves. And he did all this wonderful work, brethren and sisters, as he cleansed the house of God at his second advent, purging out all the impurities. Inasmuch as ye have done it to one of these, the least of my servants, you've done it to me. Those who had been trading when the Sabbath was being held were excluded. Inasmuch as you've done it not to the one at least of these, my brethren, you've done it not to me. You've been trading when you should have been serving. You've been pleasing yourself when you should have been sacrificing. And so the judgment was made evident as, as Nehemiah revealed why he was doing what he did in those verses that we've so very briefly skimmed over. And now in verse 22, he says halfway down there, Remember me, O my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of thy mercy. His great works were merely a reasonable service. 
And when all was done, and when all was said and done, when all was performed, he saw the need for his own mercy concerning me and spare me according to thy mercy. You have the same word in Malachi chapter 3 verse 17. They shall be mine, saith Yahweh of hosts, in that day when I will make up my jewels and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. I will spare them as we are gathered together to, 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 to feel the need of spare means that we don't profess a, a perfect obedience that we are recognising our insignificance we recognise our need of mercy and God will provide it because he loves us as the father loves the son and so as a son we say to him spare me according to the greatness of thy mercy and now Nehemiah's final act brethren and sisters his final act was to clean the house of Israel his final act was to bring a pure speech a pure language a one mind into his little home here his family his temple his nation his kingdom he pinpoints the greatest danger of being friends with this world it can start in so innocent ways and it can blossom into dangerous affiliations and unfortunately in the days of Nehemiah evil predominated in an alliance so that the language of the Jews was forgotten. Verse 24 The people, children spake half in the speech of Asdod and could not speak in the Jews' language. Couldn't speak the Bible language. Couldn't speak divine words anymore. Thought in Gentile terms. The example of Solomon should have warned that, them of that even endure the tremendous abilities and opportunities that God had blessed him with, he had allowed the weakness of the flesh to dominate his thinking and he had caused sin in his friendship with the world. So in verse 28, the synagogue of Satan is dismissed and some of, and one of the sons of Joadah, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Zambalat the Horonite, Therefore, I chased him from me. Can you see Nehemiah? He's chasing him out. That man that would not uh, uh, submit to defeat at the hands of the enemy. He's now chasing out Sambalat the Horonite. That, that evil influence. He's going to chase them out because they were like a carcass and he was dismiss, dismissing them to the eagles to remove he chases out the the um, he chases out one of the sons of Joada, the son of Eliashib, who was son-in-law to Sanballat, the Horonite. He chased it out from me, and that's how the Old Testament closes. That's the last historical incident in the Old, Old Testament: a temple cleansed, a priesthood reformed, a rebellious priest excluded. And now Nehemiah provides for the continuance of that in verse 30 and 31. You have in verse 29 that little staccato prayer again. Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood. God would handle that matter. They would be dispensed with the devil and his angels to shame and everlasting contempt. 
because they had defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites, God would handle that matter. The judgment of Nehemiah had been provided. And now in the last moments, brethren and sisters, there thus I cleansed I thus cleansed I them from all strangers and appointed the boards of the priests and the Levites, everyone in his business, and for the wood offering at times appointed, and for the first fruits. The wood offerings. The success of his reform depended upon the work being maintained. This required that the fires of the temple services be kept burning. The incense altar, the offering altar, it had to be kept burning. There was wood required. And Nehemiah provided for that. But not only that, first fruits. A demonstration of dedication that enabled the priests to continue in their office. Wood, first fruits, cause, effect. Both of them provided by the people. Wood is the foundation. First fruits is the result of those of that building, that growing. And both were provided by the people and both were dedicated to Yahweh. The beginning and the end. I am Alpha and Omega. The wood and the first fruits. And so we conclude this wonderful book, brethren and sisters, this beautiful parable, this marvellous history, this tremendous prophecy with a prayer. Remember me, O my God, for good. And that brings the Old Testament to a close. It's the last word spoken in the Old Testament. And the next historical event, as we mentioned earlier in our studies, is the birth of the new high priest, the one who would perform this to absolute perfection, the one who would come in the spirit of Nehemiah, the one who would be both servant and governor, the one who would go to his father and return and cleanse the temple, the great king and king of kings and lord of all lords. That's him. He will replace Eliashib as the true representative of Yahweh. He will have those words on his forehead, Revelation 14, holiness to Yahweh inscribed in his forehead. Nehemiah saw him coming. Nehemiah saw the Messiah coming. He saw the Lord Jesus Christ. He saw his work in the establishment of Jerusalem in glory. He heard Malachi ascribe praise to the ultimate uh, glory of God and to his work. Unto you that fear my name, Malachi 4.2, shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his beams as that great day, that new day comes, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And he shall tread down the wicked, and they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. In the day that I do this, saith Yahweh Sabaoth. And I'm going to send Moses and Elijah, and they shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Nehemiah waits that time now. He awaits it in the dust, brethren and sisters. He shall soon rise. He'll rise to return to Jerusalem. He'll rise to rebuild the walls. To be restored in the days of old. The tabernacle of David, says says the uh, uh, Acts chapter 15. The tabernacle of David shall be raised up. That all the Gentiles might come and rejoice in that glory. He'll be there. 
Perhaps our Lord Jesus Christ will have him actually supervise the building of the house of prayer for all nations, a work for which he will be eminently suited, for he has already performed that in a typical way already. In any case, he shall have great prominence in changing the hearts of the fathers to the children. It remains for us, brethren and sisters, to take notice of these things, to learn from Nehemiah, to love this man, to respect his work and to imitate it in our lives. When we do that, when we build the house of God in our own environment, we shall achieve a position with him in the days to come. Our prayer must always be each day, remember me, O my God, for good.